When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. By now, you know that sound. It's the sound of the Home Depot. But what about those sounds? Those are the sounds of an LG wash tower with ultra-large capacity, serving up a powerful yet gentle clean in just 29 minutes. Making this the sound of savings on the best appliance brands. The Home Depot. How doers get more done. Get up to 25% off the LG wash tower with ultra-large capacity and reduced wash time. Pricing valid January 5th through January 25th, 2023. Gas dryer extra. U.S. only. See store or online for details. It's time to let it roll. The podcast about how and why popular music happens with host Nate Wilcox. Be sure and subscribe to the Let It Roll podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Podomatic, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. This week, author Mark Blake joins Nate to talk about his book, Bring It On Home, Peter Grant, Led Zeppelin, and Beyond, the story of rock's greatest manager. In this episode, Mark and Nate talk about the man behind the biggest rock band of the 1970s, Peter Grant, manager of Led Zeppelin. Mark goes beyond the legends of money, muscle, and drugs, and tells us about the real human being who fought for his clients and turned the music industry on its ear. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and today I'm joined by Mark Blake, author of Bring It On Home, Peter Grant, Led Zeppelin, and Beyond, the story of rock's greatest manager. Mark, welcome. Hi, how you doing? Good. Thanks for coming on the show. Rock's greatest manager. That's a big claim. Like, Yeah, up, up till about 1975, perhaps, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it, went down, it went downhill after that. This is, this is show business, though. I think he was rock's greatest manager in terms of the kind of pioneering stuff that he did and the things that are now standard in music and management, which weren't really before Peter Grant. And uh, I really enjoyed the book. And, and one thing I think you did a good job of bringing out was where Peter Grant came from and what the music business was like during his apprenticeship, which lasted from the late 50s, from the time he was a bouncer and a doorman, even a professional wrestler for a bit. Uh, a little bit of stagecraft, then a road manager, et cetera, et cetera. And you call him a Zelig of the UK music scene. What did you mean by that? Well, it's in the film Zelig. It's the, it's the old Woody Allen film where the guy turns up in every every major sort of scene in history. You've suddenly got this character that's just there in the background. 
I mean, it's from the old comedy film, but that the, the expression Zelig has kind of moved into mainstream use. And that that's how I, I saw Peter Grant. If you if you look at the British music scene in the 60s, like you say, in the late 50s, Peter Grant is somewhere was somewhere in the background, whether that's loading an amp in, you know, in the back of a van for Gene Vincent, Eddie Cochran, Chuck Berry, those guys when they first came to tour the UK whether that's helping the Rolling Stones get their first session on the BBC, which he did. Grant is sort of there in the background. It's not deliberate. He's just the guy who's on the scene hustling a living while the sort of music business develops around him. So that, that was my, that was my meaning. Cool. I, I, and I think you illustrated it really well. I, there were two people in this period that I'd like to cover. One sure. was sort of his partner and another one, Mentor is not exactly the right term, but um, to some extent, Grant was a, pe- a protege of Don Arden. Tell us about the infamous Mr. Arden. Well, Don Arden was Sharon Osbourne's dad. Um, he managed several acts here in the UK, um, including the Small Faces, um, various kind of rock and roll acts. And Gene Vincent was the main one. He looked after Gene Vincent when Gene moved to the UK. His career was dying in America when he came to the UK. And, and Don ends up managing him. Don was a booking agent, a promoter. He did a bit of everything. And Don was a very aggressive, uh, violent man who conducted his business through fear. And uh, Peter came and worked for him as a door, as a as a driver originally. And one of his jobs was driving Sharon Osbourne to school when she was a kid. So that was Peter's first job. But Peter learnt from Don, and I think he understood the power of intimidation. In, in a lot of cases, it wasn't so much what Don did, but what people thought Don would do to them. So if you're a promoter and you're trying to rip off a band and not pay them, you know the fear of physical violence was a powerful tool. So that's who, uh, that's what Peter learned from Don. Don was, again, a, a very divisive character and not a man who treated his bands very well, unlike Peter. But I think it's fair to say he, you know, he was Peter Grant's mentor for some time. Yeah, Peter learned a lot. And there's a great uh, quote you have from Don Arden that says, the music industry is made up of two separate groups, drama queens and wannabe gangsters, and they're always gossiping among themselves. Elaborate on that a little bit. Well, that is what the music business was like. I mean, definitely at that time, you had a lot of people that were on the fringes of uh, the criminal world. You know, they saw pop music as an opportunity to make money, just as they would have seen the drugs trade as a way to make money a little later on. And um, so, you know, Don was a gangster or pretended to be a gangster or thought he was. A lot of the people that he employed were people that had criminal records. They were people that perhaps had a history of violence. That's how the business was over here at the time. In terms of drama queens, well, also, you know, it, those are the kind of people that wanted to be performers that wanted to be a part of the action. Everybody was hooked on the glamour of this and it's still a very powerful tool it's that reflected glamour hey i'm around the band you know when rock and roll started there was no history for this before there was no there was no kind of rule book or or or, or any way of looking at how the music business was going to develop rock and roll was a new thing it could have lasted six months most people thought it would never mind you'd be talking about it 50 years down the line so there was a lot of that a lot of people jumping on the bandwagon as we say wanting to be performers wanting to be stars and that's the mix that's that's what the music industry was in britain in at that time in the early 60s wannabe gangsters and 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 wannabe drama queens it was a mix of the two you know people that wanted to show off and people that were willing to knock someone out 
in order to let them show off. I think that's one yeah. way of it. Well put. And and so what what was the key lesson that Peter Grant learned as Gene Vincent's handler? This is an infamously volatile Gene Vincent, never far from a knife or a gun if he can get his hands on one. Sure. I think he what he learned from Gene Vincent was the whole point with Peter was that he was paid to get the act on stage and get the money at the end of the show. And he learned that you did that no matter what it took. And in the, you know, in the case of Gene Vincent, like you say, that sometime, that, that on one memorable occasion, Gene was so drunk he couldn't perform on stage, but it was in the contract that if he, if he appeared on stage and was on that stage for at least five minutes, he'd get his money. So Peter took, literally physically carried him on stage. He had a microphone stand stuck up the back of his jacket, kept him upright for five minutes. And then when he fell over, he picked him up off stage and, and went to the office and collected the money. And I think dealing with Gene Vincent and, and dealing with his moods and his aggression and even bad behavior was the best grounding you could have had for dealing with John Bonham in Led Zeppelin. You know, I think by the time Peter came to Led Zeppelin, he'd seen pretty much everything the music industry could throw at him and he'd learned how to deal with it. And there's one other anecdote about Peter and Don Arden with Chuck Berry, where and the, and you you make it clear that it's not a verified story, but <clears throat> they were seeing the two of them, Grant and Arden, two big guys on their hands and knees stuffing pound notes through the door to Chuck Berry, like like you know like he's a vending machine, but he won't come out until he gets his full pay. I mean that is a true story. I mean many many of these stories are shrouded in mystery. We never know if they're true or not because anyone who's there is dead and, and, and can't tell us. Um, the Chuck Berry story, though, I do believe that's true. That happened on several occasions. Chuck, Chuck would not perform on stage unless he'd had every last penny of his fee in cash. And like I say, that was, a, that was an occasion where they were feeding pound notes under the door of his dressing room. On another occasion, Peter smashed into a cigarette vending machine to get the loose change out of that so that he could give uh, Peter the uh, give chuck berry the last few shillings to get him on stage that's how chuck operated you know chuck had been in prison he'd been ripped off a hell of a lot in america and his argument was i play guitar when you give me the money and and you know the, the that's the nature of the music business here and i suspect it was very similar in the states but that's definitely how it was at, around that time yeah and that was a very important lesson that peter took on and the other guy um the key figure in the british music business that formed peter grant was more of a partner to him and that was mickey most tell us a little about mickey most and his relationship with peter grant sure. well mickey most is an interesting character and i don't think mickey Ed was ever uh, for a long time here when i was a child in the 1970s here in england mickey was a household name like simon cowell is now and i don't think that was certainly not the case in america because in the 70s mickey was a tv music talent show judge on a show called New Faces, which is the precursor of The X Factor and American Idol and those kinds of shows. And he was the kind of bitchy judge that he would always come out with a cutting remark about one of the young acts on the show. But in the 1960s, Mickey was a producer. He produced a lot of pop records over here. He produced Donovan, uh, the Nashville Teens, Lulu. Um, he had a hand in a whole load of groups as a producer, also a sort of in management as well. And Mickey was a, uh, he was a hustler, like Peter. He was younger than Peter. He was complete opposite of Peter. He wasn't a big guy. He wasn't an aggressive-looking guy. But he was someone that wanted to make money out of the music music business. He was a, he was one of those drama queens, if you like. And, and he had the wannabe gangster, if you want, with, Pete, with Peter Grant. So they were an unlikely pairing. But they were together, working together for, for a few years, and we were very good friends for, for even longer. And again, he, he was the guy 
he was managing, I think, the Jeff Beck group. He didn't want to manage them anymore, and Peter took him on, and that was a, a stepping stone towards getting Led Zeppelin. And there was also the Animals, which is the first group that that Peter really road managed. And and between him and Mickey Mouse, they actually sort of stole the Animals away from Don Arden with some help from Alan Klein. Yes, they did. I mean, this was a very murky business, so much so that Eric Burden of the Animals, who's, who's still around, he, his wife who manages him now, when she discovered that I had access to Peter Grant's sort of folders and papers and correspondence going back to the 60s, she said to me to tell me if there's anything in any contracts for the animals because I think they're still waiting for money 50 years down the line. But, you know, that's the, that's the nature of the game. But, yeah, but Peter did. He, they, Don Arden had the animals. Peter Grant thought he could get a better deal for him with the help of Alan Klein, who was a business manager that famously, uh, you know, ripped off the Beatles and the Rolling Stones later on. But again, was one of these hustlers that, that came into the British music business and, and promised everybody a lot of money. And so, yeah, taking the animals away from Don Arden was the was the end of the road for Don and Peter Grant's relationship. They, those two never, never recovered from that. Yeah, and you tell a, a tale of how Peter discovered that Don Arden was getting way more money from the William Morris agency than the animals had any idea. That's right. He had two sets of letterheads. I'm, I'm not sure if Eric Burden's wife knows this. Perhaps I should email her and tell her. But that's right. He had two sets of letterheads. He had two two sets of contracts. So the one that he showed the band, hey, you're getting this amount of money. And then, of course, he had the real one that he had with the booking agency in which he was pocketing a, you know, a fortune. And again, that was the nature of the business back then. You know, these, these kind of rip-offs and scams were, were widespread. I don't think there was anything unique about the animal situation. I think that's the, the, these kind of things contributed to the way Peter Grant was when it came to doing business with Led Zeppelin. Mm. But that's what's unique about Peter Grant is he saw this bullshit and said, I will not do this. Yeah, he did his own bullshit later on. But you're right. That, that At the time, you can't underestimate what a, what a difference that attitude was because managers like Don Arden said that their acts worked for them. Peter's idea was we work for the act. And if we support the talent, we'll all get rich. We'll all make money off this. And, and that, it might seem very obvious now, but in the 60s, that was an unusual attitude to take. Partly because pop, no one knew how long pop music was going to last as well. I think that had something to do with it. But yeah, that was the fundamental difference. And and you mentioned the Yardbirds, and I want to I want to uh, cue up. I mean, actually, you, me you mentioned the Jeff Beck group, not the Yardbirds. <laughs> I want to cue up the first song I want to play, which is the Jeff Beck group's version of "You Shook Me," which mm. later on Led Zeppelin will do. So let's hear Jeff Beck and Rod Stewart and the Jeff Beck group doing "You Shook Me." And that was Jeff Beck's version of You Shook Me, which is this, this was a group, um, a lot of people think it's the precursor to Led Zeppelin. You had the hotshot lead guitarist, powerhouse rhythm section, and the preening front man with the big voice who could go toe-to-toe -to -toe with the virtuoso guitarist. How, where do you come down on that? I mean, it's, I've read some accounts in Jeff Beck bios that, you know, Peter Grant and Jimmy Page are sitting stage side and watching their act. 
you don't tell that particular anecdote, but you do talk about how you know Peter Grant was involved in the production of the album with that song on it, and then doesn't say a thing when Led Zeppelin records the same tune. Yeah, I mean, I, I Peter always claimed he produced that album, but no one else has, has kind of confirmed that. There was no doubt about it. He was hedging his bets between the Jeff Beck group and what effectively became Led Zeppelin. I, I wouldn't be at all surprised to, to know that him and Jimmy Page were sitting by the side of the stage taking notes. I, I think they were. Jimmy Page, hugely competitive, especially with Jeff Beck, who he'd known since they were like 13, 14 years old in, in London. You know, they were kids together, practically grew up together. Um, you can be pretty sure he was taking notes. So I think the Jeff Beck group was a precursor of, of Led Zeppelin, very much so. What they didn't have was that rhythm section. And with no disrespect to their drummer and bass player, which bass player was Ronnie Wood at one point, but they didn't have a John Bonham or a John Paul Jones. And, and that, I think, was a huge difference. And Jeff Beck wasn't a band leader, although it was named after him. He wasn't he wasn't that guy, whereas Jimmy Page was. So, you know, I think I, I, I think Led Zeppelin probably took a great deal from the Jeff Beck group. Yeah, and Peter Grant basically compared the two racehorses and went with the one that was the better bet, which was Absolutely. Jimmy Page. Absolutely, yeah. And and he, he first meets Jimmy Page when uh, he and Mickey Bowe sort of inherit the manager managing of the Yardbirds, which was a UK group that broke out big in the States in the UK in 65. Jeff Beck first with Eric Clapton, then Jeff Beck. Then Jimmy Page joins while Jeff Beck's still in the band. Yeah, <laughs> but that doesn't last long. Then by the time Peter Grant comes along, it's just Jimmy Page at lead guitar. That's right. Yeah, pretty much so. I think he'd met Jimmy Page before when Jimmy was doing a lot of sessions for Mickey Most because Page obviously played on lots of records. He knew who Jimmy Page was when he was like 17, 18, and, and he was doing sessions around London. But yeah, the Yardbirds is is the beginning of that, and he backed the you know he backed the right horse. Like like you said, the Yardbirds kind of fell apart on the road. They split into two camps. And the singer and the drummer wanted to go off and do something that was very pop direct, very much in a pop music direction. And Jimmy, and to a certain extent, the bass player, Chris Dreyer, wanted to do something that was closer to what the Yardbirds were starting to do live on stage, which is things like Dazed and Confused and the, the beginnings of that Zeppelin sound. And Peter quite rightly backed Jimmy Page. He had this unshakable belief that Jimmy Page was the talent and you know he followed him so when the band finally called it quits he, he said to page you know what do you want to do next and i want to put a new band together will you manage me yes i will and you know the rest is history as they say and there's there's one anecdote from the yardbirds era about peter grant that i think we have to share which is when um they're playing a state fair in canada and oh, yeah. <laughs> two mafioso come in and want to rip him off and literally pull a gun on Peter Grant. And what was Peter Grant's response to that? That's right. Well, Chris Dreyer told me this story. And, uh, you know, he Chris was on the coach and saw this happen. And on the bus, they turned up to play a, state, play a state fair. They turned up late or there was some problem. They were owed $2,000. They'd had $1,000 already. And at the end, these two possibly mob-connected promoters came in and said, look, we're, they came on the bus and they said, look, we're not giving you your money. You turned up late or whatever the reason was. Peter says, yes, you are. It got very heated. The guy pulls a revolver, sticks it into Peter's stomach. And, you know, Peter fronted him out with it, as we say. He bound, he walked, carried on walking forward down the coach, down the aisle of the coach. Chris Dreyer said he was sat there just watching this in amazement, shaking with fear because he thought his manager was going to be shot. He bounced him down the, the aisle with his stomach. And, you know, don't be so fucking cheap. 
you're not going to shoot me for a thousand dollars uh, you know, he had the bravado to do that. By the time they got to the front of the bus, the promoters lost his lost his bottle, as we say in the UK, which which means he kind of was scared himself and realised he couldn't intimidate this guy, uh, and started laughing uneasily, and then gave him his thousand dollars. But that story was, you know, that that story became legend very very quickly after that. And Chris Dreyer worked on the assumption, as did Jimmy Page, you know, if this guy is willing to face down an an armed promoter he'll do anything for us and uh, he was right yeah and that i think speaks to the confidence uh that peter grant's bands had in him like if you've got peter grant in your corner there's nothing to be afraid of that's right and most musicians are wimps you know you got to remember that these are not you know peter was a peter was a street guy you know, he had those street smarts. Jimmy Page is, is not that kind of guy. Jimmy's talent lies in other ways. So you've got a guy that's willing to stand between you and a promoter and a record company, anyone. That's that's a powerful thing to have. I think it's quite intoxicating. All these bands, especially Led Zeppelin, kind of got a little bit high and a little bit drunk on having that power, having that big guy that's going to do anything for you. Absolutely. And and you mentioned record company. Tell us a little bit about how Peter handled the negotiations with uh, the record companies when Led Zeppelin was put together. They signed with Atlantic, but there were other pe- players in the hunt, including Alan Klein, Epic Records. Yeah, everybody, everybody wanted a piece, Clive Davis. Everybody wanted. And I think Clive Davis presumed that they'd get Led Zeppelin because the Yardbirds had been signed to CBS or to one of the imprints at CBS. And, uh, of course, Jimmy Page wasn't signed to CBS because he'd come into it late, come to the Yardbirds later. So... Clive Davis was appalled to discover that this hot new British band were going to get away from him. Um, the other thing to bear in mind is Cream, Eric Clapton's power trio, Cream with Jack Bruce and Ginger Baker. They'd been massive in America, and then they split up. They only lasted a couple of years. They split up. So Atlantic Records had a hole in their roster. They wanted a long-haired, white English rock band. So they went after Page's new group without even hearing any of the music. And this is what Peter was great at doing. He created a buzz. He helped create a buzz. No one had heard any of the music before they before they were throwing money uh, at what became Led Zeppelin. And I think that was, a, again, that was a way in which for the first time, one of the first times, the group had the power. The group weren't going cap in hand to a record label going, will you give me a, will you give us a record deal, please, sir? They were, you know, the the, rec- the record labels were coming to them, begging for the chance to sign this band. And, and what they did is they signed a deal with Atlantic that they licensed their music to Atlantic. Atlantic would put it out and but Zeppelin would control it. So the way the albums looked, the way the albums were produced, that was all up to Led Zeppelin, mainly up to Jimmy Page. Uh, the record company worked for them. So again, this is they turned the whole balance of power on its head. And they also let rumors fly about the size of the advance. Yes. I mean, even to this day, you know, the exact neg- the exact terms of that advance are hard to ascertain. I mean, you've only got what Jerry Wexler said, and Wexler was the guy that actually signed them to Atlantic. But yeah, it was a huge advance. But of course, what that did was it built up this hype. A lot of people thought they were a hype. You know, how can you live, possibly live up to that advance? And and But they did. You know, Atlantic got their money and some. And around this time, uh, Peter brings in two people to the organization that I want to cover. And one of them is sort of a smaller version of himself, Richard Cole, the Uber yeah. roadie. Mm. 
yeah, what, see, yeah, yeah. Tell us about Richard Cole. Well, Richard is great. Yeah, Richard. Richard was a, a tour manager. He'd done. He was a road manager um, and a roadie for the Who and for various other groups, including the Jeff Beck group for a little while. Um, he was a working class guy from from Northwest London. He worked as a scaffolder before that. Um, you know, out of school at 15, no qualifications, no real apprenticeship, working in factories, working as a scaffolder, got a job driving the who and just sort of, again, hustled his way through. Um, and when Peter was looking for a road manager for one of his other bands before Led Zeppelin, a group called the New Vaudeville Band, um, he got he got Richard on board. Richard was about in his early 20s, maybe 21, 22 at the time. Peter was 10 years older. So Peter sort of became his mentor. And then, you know, within a year of Led Zeppelin, within a few months, rather, of, of Led Zeppelin, Richard was working solely for Led Zeppelin. And, and he was their tour manager almost up until the end of Led Zeppelin. And he was the guy that did a hell of a lot of the dirty work and a lot of the day-to-day stuff for Peter. I mean, Richard's contribution to this book is was uh, it was huge. You know, he was someone that really, uh, you know, he, he, he was willing to share a lot of information, a lot of insider stuff with me for this, far more than I think he's done with anyone else before. So, yeah, I, I can't talk more highly of Richard because he's a very, he was a very dangerous man back in the day and a very difficult man and a bad man on occasion, most certainly. But but you know, he he really came good for me on this one. And he, in his initial interaction with Peter Grant, sort of followed a pattern of many people that had long relationships with Peter Grant. Was he stood his ground with Peter? Yeah, he did to an extent. Yeah, that's right. He, uh, you know, I think it was the the, the thing was he, he, he Peter said, "How much money do you want?" It was like thirty pounds. 30, 30 UK pounds or something. I think Peter offered him 30 or 25 or something. He said, I want 30 all in, you know, blah, blah, blah. And so Peter's attitude was, if he, look, if he can talk to me like that, he'd be great at getting money out of club owners and promoters. So, and he was absolutely right. I mean, that's what Richard, Richard was like a, was like a Rottweiler when it came to getting the money. And that was, a, you know, that was something Peter admired and respected. All right, and let's hear our second song. This is a live version of Communication Breakdown from 1969, Led Zeppelin. And that was Led Zeppelin doing Communication Breakdown, which is a song they copyrighted, but it's basically an Eddie Cochran song. You don't really get into the whole plagiarism issue with Zeppelin. Why did you dodge that bullet? Uh, well, because it's a book about Peter Grant, really, rather than Zeppelin. I mean, I think if it was an analysis of Led Zeppelin's music, I would have gone a lot deeper on that. But, I mean, Grant never really talked about it. Um, I feel that was more, that's more that's, that's something Peter, that's something that Jimmy Page and Robert plant need to answer really i mean they of course they plagiarize these songs it's you know it's, it's a matter of fact that they did i don't think grant really cared i think at the time everything was moving at such a speed that they never stopped to think about these lawsuits that were going to come down the pipe you know 30 40 years later but no i i avoided it i avoided it in the same way that i didn't get into too much detailed analysis of the music because Peter Grant wasn't musical. You know, he was the manager. He didn't have anything to, to, to do with the music. Yeah, he, it seems entirely plausible he had no idea about 
any of the plagiarism they were doing because he wasn't familiar with the songs they were ripping off. With the songs, no. I mean, it's not like now where you can go on Spotify and look at this stuff and hear anything. He didn't know. Everybody was operating in a bit of a bubble. The bands knew. I mean, they, they, they knew what they were doing. <laughs> I'm sure they did. Yeah. And and the second uh, guy that, that Peter Grant brought in that I want to cover was an attorney named Steve Weiss who also had an initial conflict with Peter Grant and won his respect. That's right, Steve. What? Yeah, well, Steve Weiss. That, yeah, I mean, Steve's not with us anymore. Um, it would be interesting to know what he would have had to say if he had, if he was still around. Um, yeah, that's right. I think when Peter came unstuck with the animals and that double set of contracts that we were talking about before, Steve Weiss threatened it. Steve Weiss, he found out about it, and and I think what happened is that. Peter made a note that if he needed a, a if he needed a ball breaking New York attorney, then Steve Weiss was the guy to get. And so later on, he got him on side with with Zedman, and he was Peter's attorney, not always serving Peter's best interest. Later on, as we as we sort of get to in the book, but Weiss is very much the guy who's often behind the scenes in the Zedman story. I think he's hugely important to Led Zeppelin and, and to their success because he was also the guy helping to cut these deals that, that, that we talked about. This didn't all come from Grant. A lot of this stuff came from Steve Weiss as well. And there's a great quote that you have about the Zeppelin organization um, where they were described as, the Zeppelin organization reminded me of guys I'd seen in Chicago, the kind that would blow your brains out and then offer to pay for the funeral. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. That's yeah, it's a guy called Joe Jammer that told me that. He was a musician, yeah. I think that's a pretty fair description. Yeah, definitely. I think Peter did run his organization, certainly in the later on, a little bit like the Mafios, a little bit like the Mafia, definitely. There were, there were parallels in so and many so many ways <laughs> yeah and wise is the guy that's kind of the fixer that's able to go up the chain of command and has the surprising high level contacts that can yes. fix things in amazing ways you, you can make of that what you will but i mean let's be honest organized crime has been involved in the music industry since the beginning and it's, it's a matter of record that you know the mafia were involved in jukeboxes for instance that alone payola all of these things. Um, there were people certainly higher up the chain at Warner Brothers who owned Atlantic Records that you could say were perhaps connected, you know, whatever, you can take that to mean whatever it is. And Steve Weiss was as well. I mean, Weiss knew people, Weiss negotiated with a mafia family to sort out um, a kind of protection racketing scam that was going on with one of his other bands, Vanilla Fudge. You know, the, the, the two New York families were rowing over how much protection money should play and pay on a club steve weiss came in and organized that and sorted it out so weiss clearly had contacts in high up places like you say in the chain of command probably mob connected which all of which ensured that led zeppelin could go about their business in america you know uh, without without running into problems and 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 one thing i want to get out is how much the scale of the pop music industry changed right at this time, just as Led Zeppelin comes out, the baby boomer generation in America comes of age. Audiences swell by a factor of 10, sometimes a factor of 100. And because of Peter Grant and the organization he put in place, Zeppelin was able to grab the record industry basically by the balls. Tell us how they changed the way singles worked with the record company and refused well, to do them. 
they refused to do singles. I mean, singles did creep out in in the United States because stuff was done for radio. And so the, there were singles in the States. In the UK, there were no singles at all. Absolutely none at all. And this started with a whole lot of love because they were, the whole lot of love was getting played on the kind of what we would call the FM radio stations in, in the States, albums that, stations that were aimed towards underground music or albums music. And then, you know, Atlantic wanted to put out a single of Whole Lot of Love so they could get it played, a shorter version, get it played on daytime radio on your mainstream stations. And uh, Grant refused to do this. I mean, t- the notion of not doing singles was considered commercial suicide when they first proposed that. Pink Floyd didn't do singles either. It's worth pointing that out. But again, that changed things because if you wanted to listen to Led Zeppelin's music, you had to buy an album. Also, they didn't appear on TV. You didn't see them on the equivalent of the Ed Sullivan show or whatever the the big shows were here in the UK or in the US at that time. They never did any TV appearance uh, at all. I think there was a, a little bit in France right at the very beginning and then they never did it again. So again, you had to go, you, you wanted to see Led Zeppelin, you had to buy a concert ticket. All of these things were considered, like I say, commercial suicide at the time. But it worked because it built a mystique and it built this aura around the band. And to experience the band, you had to spend more money on concert tickets and more money on LPs. And that's one thing I don't think people younger than us understand, that in the 70s, all you saw of Led Zeppelin was these mysterious album covers with very little photos of the band absolutely and you rarely saw them in magazines you never saw them on tv so if you you know even though they're so charismatic and iconic you know jimmy page in his wizard outfit and robert plant with this i'm a golden god bare-chested you know big willy tight pants thing Mm. but you had to pay up front to see it like it was you know a brilliant strategy it was a brilliant strategy. I mean, you want to see Les Zeppelin now, you just go on YouTube. It's all over YouTube. But the, you know, this stuff, even videos of them, you know, this stuff just was not available. And here in the UK, where we had our, our radio stations, we had about four radio stations. You know, you, there, there's only like one late night show that might play Led Zeppelin. You know, so it was even more, it was even more shuttered. It was more like a, it was like a secret society or something like that. Which is an amazing thing to pull off with the biggest band in the world. And well, there's one, before we get to the the peak in the fall, I wanted to get one last incident you described that, that I think captures Peter Grant's contribution to their theatricality. And that to some extent, he was sort of like Brian Epstein of the Beatles, where he honed Led Zeppelin's performance and presentation. There was an incident at the bath festival where Grant arranged the timing such that they would come on at sunset and then, as soon as the sun went down, turn on the stage lights and boom. Yeah, yeah, that's right. He, he contacted the meteorological office here, the weather office, to, to find out what time the sun would go down in that part of England at that particular time. And, yeah, he staged it around that. I mean, something we didn't mention earlier is that Peter's first, one of Peter's first jobs was a stagehand, that little theatre uh, in South London, like a vaudeville theatre, what you'd call vaudeville in America. So he was around that world, that theatrical world, you know, everything from magicians, juggling acts, song and dance acts, performing dogs. That was his background. So I think he brought a a lot of that old-fashioned, maybe slightly cheesy show business stuff. He brought that to rock and roll as well. He he understood the power of those those sort of things. And obviously when Led Zeppelin did it, it was more subtle or it was 
it wasn't as cheesy, shall we say, but he, he understood the worth of that kind of thing. So, yeah, he had a very, very good eye for, for, for performance and what worked and, you know, how to present the band, how long to take before doing an encore, all of that kind of thing. And there's one other thing he carried over from the old showbiz, and that was carrying the cash on his person. And, and you've got a quote, uh, Peter had a red flight bag in which he used to carry all the concert money. Hundreds of thousands in cash. That's right. Yeah, he did. Although Richard Cole phoned me the other day and Richard said, I was the one that had the bag. He said, but I said, well, it sounded better if I said Peter had it. He went, yeah, I quite understand. But Richard had the bag most of the time. But you're right. Yeah, it was a cash business. This is something else people forget about. You know, if Metallica go and play Madison Square Gardens. There's no cash backstage. That money's gone into their bank account, you know, and that's how it's done. But in the 60s and 70s, it was a bag of cash, thousands and thousands of dollars. So that was another reason why there was so much muscle and intimidation around Led Zeppelin, because, you know, they're walking around with half a million dollars in, in, in a red bag, you know, backstage in Detroit or wherever, you know. And there's a notorious incident where $200,000 goes missing from a safe in New York, and Richard Cole's the only guy who had the key. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that money was never stolen. Yeah, that money was taken by somebody else. So, but all very mysterious, but you get that Peter Grant was not perturbed about it. He wasn't perturbed about it because he knew he took it. But I think what happened is that, I think that got reported as a robbery and it had to go through the motions. Um, that money was taken to pay someone off. My yeah. own, that's my understanding. And I almost say who took it in the book. You'd have to look because someone else had the key other than Richard. But uh, that money was never stolen. Let's see. So I'm going to have to go back and reread looking for the clues to that mystery. But I think that that incident is telling, and I think you do a good job of capturing the way that the things that made them so successful at the beginning are the very things that lead to the downfall. Yeah, it's money. Too much money, too much power. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And and let's cue up our next song. Uh, this is the Ocean Song from the Song Remains the Same live show. Led Zeppelin doing the Ocean Song, which is a song about how they saw their fans as just an ocean of anonymous bodies. And so you've, I mean, it's pretty obvious. They they lost touch with the human connection to their fans and, and they just lost touch. Yeah, I think it got it got very big. I don't know if they, I don't think it was a deliberate thing to, to lose touch. I mean, there's a combination of things. The venues became bigger. I think there's a point by 1975, Peter turned around to Led Zeppelin and said, I've taken you as far as I can go. You know, where do we go to next? Is it Saturn or something like that? I'm paraphrasing. That wasn't the exact quote, but it's something like it's in the book. Yeah. Uh, yeah, they've become huge. They're playing these huge outdoor venues in, in, in the US. Even the venues they're playing in the UK are big. They didn't make a deliberate decision to become remote from their fans. I think it was just an occupational hazard of becoming as big and as successful as they did you know that that's what happened it also happened to the rolling stones it also happened to the who it also happened to pink floyd you know 
but it, 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 you definitely see it, I think, by 1975. And the other occupational hazard that, that got several people involved with the band, including Peter Grant and Richard Cole, is hard drugs. With Peter Grant, it was cocaine. Cole took it all the way to heroin as did Jimmy Page. How did that impact the band and Peter's judgment? Hugely. It had a huge impact on it because also around about 75, 76, Peter's marriage started to fall apart. Um, and Peter's son and daughter, were Warren and Helen Grant, who were very involved in this book, you know, they told me a lot of stuff about this at the time. And they were kids. They didn't know everything that was going on. But, yeah, Peter, Peter took to cocaine like a duck to water. And, uh, you know, once you've got cocaine and heroin going on in the band, everybody's operating on a different kind of almost in different time zones. And I think that certainly started to become a problem. The show started later and later you know the discipline went you know some perhaps a certain band member wouldn't get on stage unless they unless their drugs had arrived um then you've got the management and and richard cole off their heads as well it's a recipe for disaster and i think by 75 76 certainly 77 that was the tipping point that's that's the point when the drug use began to impact on the music the performance at times and most definitely on Peter Grant's judgment. And there's another element that I think you do a good job of bringing out, which is the paranoia. You talk about at least two occasions when people that were later discovered to be from the Manson family popped up and act bizarrely, make threats, and they also get some threats they thought were coming from Jamaican gangsters. Yeah, we got the Jamaican death threat letter, which I found in a box with, in Warren Grant's house. Warren Grant found that in a, in a box of his dad's stuff when we were going through. Yeah, that's a letter. <laughs> it's, a, so, it's a pretty amateur death threat, but a death threat's a, a death threat, isn't it? You know. Um, I mean, there's stories about when they played. I mean, I don't know what it's like in the States. If I go to a show now in the UK, it takes me 20 minutes to get through the doors because you go through like an almost an airport scanner to check I'm not carrying a gun or a knife or something. But I mean, that's the story in here in the book, I think, in New York Madison Square Gardens, how many revolvers and daggers they confiscated just because Zeppelin security guards did some spot checks on the audience that were coming in. So there was, you know, it, You've got par- there's a lot of drug re- drug induced paranoia, but you have also got the fact that there's lunatics running around. Like you say, there was a couple of people from the the Manson family, a couple of girls from the Manson family. One of them breaks into Robert Plant's villa and starts trying on his clothes and claiming that Plant's sending spiritual messages through to her through the ether. You know, you've got to de- you've got to deal with all that as well. So yeah, it's a, again, it's a, a lot of drama. And then around 75, they renegotiate with Atlantic and come away with their own record company that Peter Grant's running, Swan Song. Mm, yeah, it's a vanity label. I mean, Atlantic agreed to kind of distribute it and bankroll it to an extent as a way of keeping Led Zeppelin happy. They didn't want to lose Led Zeppelin. So it's like give them their own record label. But it, it, it was chaos from the beginning because you can't manage... You can't manage the biggest band in the world and and run a record label and sign new acts and be an A and R man to those acts and manage those acts and do do the things that that are required. I mean, Swan Song's other big success story was Bad Company, but a lot of the day to day running of Bad Company was done by somebody else. Peter was the manager nominally; he said he was the manager, but he didn't do a great. He negotiated contracts, but he didn't do a great deal of day to day managing. Um, so that, that made a difference. But anyone else signed to Swan Song? I mean, you got the kudos of being signed to Led Zeppelin's record label, but in reality, it was a disaster. Absolute disaster. 
Yeah, they weren't able to do anything for the pretty things, uh, no. for example, except spend a lot of money. They spent a lot of money and took an enormous amount of drugs. But you know, decisions couldn't get made because after after a period of time, Peter stopped coming to the office. It, you know, and and if they wanted to make if they wanted to make A and R decisions, hey, what are we going to do about pretty things or something? They had to get all four members of Led Zeppelin to sign off on it, and you couldn't even get the four of them in a room together when they weren't performing live. So you no, know, it was chaos. And you've got an anecdote in there about the way Peter Grant leveraged his relationships with the booking agencies kind of muscled them on behalf of bad company, but didn't realize when he came back with the pretty things that those people would be looking for revenge. That's right. Because, I mean, what, what had happened around 1972, 73, and we can't remember, Richard Cole can't remember, um, it was Zeppelin start, Grant started demanding 90% of the gate money for any Led Zeppelin show. Normally the split with promoters stroke agencies was 60-40 in favor of the band. And he said it's 90-10, so he cut out the agents, the booking agents completely. You know, he announced the Led Zeppelin show on the radio on his favorite, you know, one of his favorite DJs in New York would say, hey, they're playing Madison Square Gardens. The tickets would sell out within 40 minutes. They didn't need, they need an agent anymore. It was word of mouth. And the, his argument was 10% of Led Zeppelin is still a lot of money, which it was. But by doing that, he broke this monopoly that, that the promoters had or over the bands again it was about shifting the balance of power and he made a hell of a lot of enemies and he was able he never was able to impose quite that i think with bad company but what he did was he was right he went back to the agency he'd kind of screwed over with led zeppelin let them have bad company and they had to begrudgingly take it but then he tried it with the pretty things and no one no no promoter would touch them because the pretty things weren't success weren't successful weren't as big a hit as bad company had been so he yeah he overplayed his hand completely and and there's a number of instances of that like it talk, you talk about the festival they played at tampa where the rain started and they canceled the show very quickly and peter grant got paid they got their full payment but fans didn't get the show that's right. It was a, that was a Zeppelin show at Tampa. Yeah, he he got the money up front, but the, they hadn't checked the uh, the small print on the uh, on the ticket. Normally, they had a get out clause on the ticket that if it poured with rain at an outdoor show, they had the right to cancel. And in this case, they didn't have that, but they still managed to get away with the money. That's right. And there was you know one of the guys I spoke to that was on that tour said you know they, they literally led they fled the venue in limousines. The audience were rioting. There's tear gas going everywhere. The cops have got the batons out. They're screaming down the highway to a private air field where their private jet is waiting to take them off. He said by the time they got there, there were kids waiting by the airfield, screaming and sort of hanging on the fence, you know, where, you know, wanting Led Zeppelin. And, and they sort of disappear up into the sky like the gods. You know, Peter Grant sat there with a bag of money on his lap. And I think it's a great anecdote because I think it does illustrate you know, the power that they had. But again, what you talked about earlier about the remoteness, and I think that's, that's the point is if you're, if you're a Zeppelin fan, you're going, what the fuck? You know, I've paid this money. Now the band have just disappeared. So you know, that, that that's indicative of that remoteness that was starting to creep in, definitely. And then on a later tour in 77, there's a flat-out tragedy that, that happens when there's conflict between the Zeppelin organization and Bill Graham's organization, which, you know, Bill Graham was the king promoter uh, on the north coast of California, big man in the San Francisco scene, but another tough operator who ran a, a mean organization. And 
Peter has recruited this guy, John Biffo Benden, <laughs> as ben. part of the crew. And so yeah. tell us about Benden and, and how everything went tragically wrong in Oakland. Well, I think this goes back to that thing about power that we're talking about. I mean, John Bindon was a was a gangster. He, he was a, he was a, a protection racketeer. He was also an actor. He's a bit part actor. He was in he was in a few very well regarded movies and TV films here in the sixties and early seventies. But his day job, if you like, was 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 protection racketeering and you know doing favors for various gangsters he sort of gets involved in zeppelin's organization through their kind of west london connections he drank in the pubs near the swan song office and he was a very intimidating guy a very tough intimidating guy and peter liked having those kind of people around him um he was also having an affair with princess margaret the queen's sister um which had led to a lot of problems with the police and with her private detectives. So when he got the offer to go on tour with Led Zeppelin as a bodyguard, he took the chance. He needed to earn money and wanted to get out of England. So he goes off and does the 1977 American tour. And yeah, as you said earlier, they played Oakland Coliseum for Bill Graham, the promoter. It all went very wrong. A security guard got beaten up by Bindon and Peter Grant. There's almost all out war threatened between Graham security staff and Led Zeppelin security staff. But of course, they're scheduled to play two shows. So the beating up and the and the fights happen on the first show, but there's no way Graham's going to cancel the second show. So the second show was performed in this atmosphere of terrible, simmering kind of resentment backstage between Graham's people and Zeppelin's people. It all just got very silly and very nasty and very violent. And they got arrested. They all got arrested and they all got away with it because of Steve Weiss and various things, various strokes that were pulled, shall we say. You know, again, it's indicative of their power that they had, that they, they didn't all get thrown into jail. Yeah, but they, they were able to walk, but they came away scarred and their reputation was seriously hurt. And, and I'm Very glad much. you brought up Steve Weiss again because Grant starts to get this paranoia around Weiss and suspects him of trying to edge Grant out and take over management of the band. Yeah, I mean, what was happening was I think they wanted to get, yeah, this was around 78. They There was definitely uh, plans afoot to remove Peter. Now, the interesting thing about this is that neither, none of the band have ever discussed this publicly. And it'd be interesting to see if they ever admitted to it. I don't think it's a big deal that a band wanted to fire their manager, even a manager like Peter Grant. I don't think it's a big deal at all because I think that's almost the nature of the business. At some point, you start blaming. You've got to blame. If you're a musician, you start blaming everybody else. And there's no doubt about it. By 77, 78, Peter was not on top of his game anymore. But then neither were they. So certainly not Jimmy Page. So it's kind of six and one half dozen the other. But yeah, the, the, the stories that were intimated is that Weiss wanted a bigger piece. He wasn't going to do the managing of Led Zeppelin. Someone else would have come in and done it for him. But the idea being he wanted to kind of control the band and, and have a bigger piece of the band. And this is the point where it starts to get very ugly um, within that organization. Let's play our last song. This is uh, Rock and Roll, live from 1975, Led Zeppelin. Led Zeppelin doing rock and roll 1975 and like you say 
and 75, they're beginning to show signs that they've peaked or coming past the edge of their powers. And through the late 70s, that's increasingly the case. They confront punk rock or they don't confront punk rock. Punk rock happens and they're kind of caught on the back foot. And then they play a big festival at Nebworth and Grant once again overplays his hand. That's right, yeah. I mean, it's difficult with the whole punk rock thing because people talk about punk coming along and sort of wiping out a generation of musicians and it just didn't happen like that. Um, But I think what Grant had, they'd taken their eye off the ball. This is the thing people forget. I mean, if Led Zeppelin, they've reformed in any shape in the last few years, like we saw with the O2 concert, um, the charity concert, you know, it's a freeding frenzy for tickets. When they announced that they were playing Nebworth, the first time they didn't sell enough tickets they announced they were going to do two two weekends two saturdays a week apart they didn't sell enough tickets and i think that was a sobering reminder that their their stock had had fallen in that period in summer 1979 and uh yeah again this is another you know that was their last gig with the four of them on on british soil was was nebworth uh and you know it was a success it was going to be the beginnings of a comeback and that comeback never really happened. And that never really happened because uh, John Bonham passed away. That's right, yeah. And so talk a little bit about that. And, and Grant wasn't right there with him when it happened. But, I mean, do you feel like Grant and Cole had any culpability in that? Or was it just unstoppable? No, I think it was unstoppable. I think I know that Peter blamed himself for it. But I think you, you can blame Peter Grant for some things, but not for the death of John Bonham. It was going to happen perhaps sooner or later, and there was nothing anyone could do to stop him. I mean, you know, he'd been drinking steadily all day. He was with Jimmy Page. They were supposed to be rehearsing for an upcoming European tour. Um, and he, uh, and, and you know, he just carried on drinking, carried on drinking, fell asleep at Jimmy Page's house, was put to bed by a couple of roadies, and he, he passed, he, he choked on his own vomit, you know, just kind of cliched rock and roll death. But I don't think anybody could have stopped it. But it, it, it is definitely the guilt of that stayed with Peter for a long, long time. Because Peter's whole remit was you always look after the act. You always get the band on stage on time. And all of a sudden he wasn't able to look after the act. And, and you know, he, and the drummer died. I don't think he ever forgave himself for that. Yeah, the the second half of the book is pretty much a sad denouement. You know, Peter Grant ascends to these amazing heights especially for somebody from his background and then achieves wealth and fame but then has a long quiet decline and and you know with a lot of managers like with brian epstein or andrew legaldum you can point at certain moments where they got played or they made a terrible deal that was a disaster and you can kind of see with peter grant the only time that really happened was when they steve weiss uh sold their publishing rights to atlantic and steve kept his share yeah, that's right. I mean, that was something that I think still wrangles with, you know, still still annoys the members of Led Zeppelin. I mean, it's more complicated than that. He didn't sell all the publishing, but I, I when I tackled that in the book, I had to tackle it in the broadest terms without getting too mired in, in the details. But yeah, he sold the publishing, as did many people at that time, not knowing that CDs and box sets and that whole business was going to come along and that they could have made could have made a lot more money. But yeah, after, Led, after John Bonham died, he sort of retreated to the house and spent most of the 1980s there. 
you know, not necessarily doing very much. But I mean, he was still there for his family. And there's an, you know, for me, that period is really interesting because he basically walked away from the music business. And I think that's something I want to make really clear here. He had offers to manage other bands, he had offers to do all sorts of things. And he said no to all of them. Because his argument was, once you've done Led Zeppelin, where, where, where do you go next? And I kind of like that about the story. I like the fact that he walked away at the end, and then his last few years was leading a completely different life. Although, And he did walk away from the business, but he didn't walk away from Led Zeppelin. They essentially fired him one by one. Yeah, they did. That's right, because he stopped answering their calls or anything. I mean, we found a letter, half, half a letter, <laughs> handwritten letter that Robert Plant had, had written to him firing him. He torn it in half, and I found one half. We couldn't find the other half. Um, but, yeah, because he wasn't available anymore to them. He, he, he'd lost his interest in the business. They fired him one by one, and uh, and that was it. Yeah. Yeah, well, and, and that's the story. It's a great story, Mark. Thanks so much for coming on the show and, and telling us about Peter Grant and, and the Led Zeppelin story. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Sure, and that's the book is Bring It On Home, Peter Grant, Led Zeppelin and Beyond, The Story of Rock's Greatest Manager, and that was Mark Blake, the author. Thanks again, Mark. Thanks. Be sure and subscribe to the Let It Roll podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Podomatic, and check out our website at letitrollpodcast.com. Come back next week when author Andy Flory joins us to talk about Motown, Barry Gordy's Music Factory. Grant, Led Zeppelin, and Beyond, The Story of Rock's Greatest Manager, is published by DeCapo Press and is available wherever fine books are sold. By now, you know that sound. It's the sound of the Home Depot. But what about those sounds? Those are the sounds of an LG wash tower with ultra-large capacity, serving up a powerful yet gentle clean in just 29 minutes. Making this the sound of savings on the best appliance brands. The Home Depot. How doers get more done. Get up to 25% off the LG wash tower with ultra-large capacity and reduced wash time. Pricing valid January 5th through January 25th, 2023. Gas dryer extra. U.S. only. See store or online for details. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. 
Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any fantasy points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that fantasy points has to offer. That's fantasypoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. Fantasypoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.